Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Yeah, so it's recording. I just want to make sure I catch everything from you, but we can also catch up. Uh, where, where where are you now? What are things like at the moment? Um, <laughs> busy. <laughs> uh, this is uh, uh, this is always a very busy part of the year. So, um, uh, so I'm just today. I have uh, I have a new Christology module starting in a couple of weeks. So today mm. I finally got a day to uh, to hide away and do some reading first. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for letting us interrupt your study time. What what are you teaching this time? In this Christology module, um, uh, it's a brand new master's module, so um, going through some uh, classic texts um, through the history of the church and uh, trying to think um, through big questions like uh, the two wills of Christ and what does Jesus know, and uh, oh, lots yeah. of reading of John of Damascus and Aquinas and uh, and fun stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? Maybe we can just start there, just just for the for the fun of it. So I think for those who don't know, don't know you or don't know you yet, tell tell us who you are and what you're doing. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself, then I'm going to add some comments at the end. All right, um, I'm Jonathan Black. Um, I am a Pentecostal pastor and a theology lecturer at a Pentecostal theological college in the UK, and. Um, yeah, so I teach uh, systematic theology and church history and ethics and things like that. Yeah, and you and I know each other. I found your work right at the end of my own PhD work, and we happen to be working on similar similar things. Oh, wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. It, man, it's it's passed so quickly. And now and now we work together at Bangor with PhD students. Yeah, so that that's fun, and it's been good to to follow your follow your career and and your ministry over the last decade plus, whatever it's been. One of the things I love about Jonathan, I love about what you do is that you, you marry so well, this, this concern for the tradition and for our contemporary hearers, the the receivers of it, right? Like you, you seem to be always aware of how do we hear our tradition in the best, in the best light to mix metaphors. And, and then how do we make sure that those, concerns that are being voiced right now by the people in our parish or in our classroom, that those concerns are taken seriously. And I mean, those things are obvious, but oddly enough, we rarely are able to do those things well, right? To, to both listen to the mothers and fathers of our tradition and to our own children and our peers who, of course, are living now with the difficulties that now bring. So thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a grace, that that's on you and I, I really am grateful for it oh I, I i just to me it just seems like such a natural and uh, an important thing to do that um and i think there's something maybe with growing up in the pentecostal tradition that i'm really aware of um the reticence i suppose that we can have to um to what has gone before Mm-hmm. That, um, because there's so much emphasis on the new thing that God does, That's right. um, that um, that that uh, I suppose that makes me always want, uh, conscious of the fact that uh, it's no good just pointing to the tradition and saying 
go explore. <laughs> um, yeah, but, right. but, yes. but people, but people need to see why is why is this worth exploring? What what? How does this actually still speak to us today? How does God still speak through this? And how has the Holy Spirit? been working through the centuries mm -hmm. to, um, mm -hmm. to be able to speak to us today and uh, um, and and saying that yeah Jesus has been doing stuff in his church all these centuries that he has been giving gifts of teachers ever since the ascension and uh, and sort of if we if we want to close our ears to the ones that have gone before us and just listen to whoever happens to be around today um, that it's not just that we're missing out on some history, but we're missing out on something that Jesus has given us. <laughs> and uh, we're missing mm -hmm. out on something of how the Holy Spirit has been working. And uh, um, so, so, yeah, so that's just always, to me, I'm really conscious of that, that I want to help people to not just retrieve the tradition for the sake of retrieving the tradition, but, right. but to go back and see what the Lord has given us this as mm. a gift for us today. So let's, 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 let, let's make the most of that gift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of recognition that it's, it's not a, it's not a museum project, right? I mean, you're not, you're not stacking up or piling up records of the past, but, but discerning what, what was the spirit doing then that is meant to speak to us now? I mean, that I think, you know, is, is work we should have known scripture is always doing right these things happen to them for our sakes, as scripture yeah. says. So I, 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 I think you're right. I think that is natural, but it's actually pretty difficult to be natural sometimes. <laughs> so they, again, they, thank you. Thank you for doing it. I, I'd like to talk with you about a couple of things. One of course is the stuff about the Lord's supper in the Pentecostal tradition, which again, we both written, written about pretty extensively. And, also, what that might have to say beyond the boundaries of our movement slash tradition. I mean, by the way, I think part of what you're describing, right, is the difficulty of transitioning from having been a movement of renewal to a tradition in its own right. And, and whether or not that's, in fact, what we should do, right? I mean, I think there's some debate about whether or not Pentecostalism is intended to become a tradition in its own right, a noun and not just an adjective. And... If it is intended to be a tradition in its own right, alongside the Catholic tradition and the Lutheran tradition and the Orthodox tradition, then how to make that move from a movement that is, you know, incredibly dynamic and emergent into to something that's recognizable, right, with a, a, a set of convictions and practices that are identifiable. And where, where would you fall on that, by the way? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I'd like everyone else to hear you talk about it. Are are, are these in those recognizable categories for you? I I, I think it's um, a bit of a mixture, really, because um, on the one hand, I think Pentecostalism does have its own contribution to make as a tradition, mm -hmm. but it's just scared of being a tradition. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but I think on the other hand, there's the danger in that of um, cutting ourselves off from the riches of the rest of the body of Christ um, uh, that by becoming too self-identified as a tradition that um, that we reject things because 
they're not Pentecostal. Um, That's right. Uh, yes, yes, um, yes. And, and so I think we need a, a sort of a middle way between the two that we have to we have to see that there, Pentecostalism is not just um, I don't know. It could boil down to if, if we see it just as the sort of the renewal and don't see that tradition, um, that it could boil down to the bit of excitement that we add on to something else, yes. um, uh, and uh, and really not have a content and and become, I suppose, in the way that sometimes people outside the, I was going to say outside the tradition, <laughs> but, uh, but outside, that, that's what's outside, at stake, right? Outside Pentecostalism, the way sometimes people outside of the Pentecostal movement look on Pentecostals is as if it's all about style. Um, yeah. So I've been reading some things lately about critiques of Pentecostal worship that have been going around and that don't really seem to understand what Pentecostal worship is at all, that it all seems to boil down to a certain group of of of, of bands or, or, or worship leaders or whatever and a certain style of music and a certain style. I'm thinking, well, if you go to many Pentecostal churches... Um, around the world, you're not going to find anything like that in terms of style. But the substance is going to, that's under, that underlies it is going to be held in common with Pentecostals that might use that style. Um, and so I think there's the danger that um, in thinking too much in terms of just Pentecostalism as as this renewal that we add on to something else that it can that it could become a sort of self-fulfilling of that, that it becomes, that it boils down to a style and um, where where actually some younger people even growing up in the tradition, what they identify with is how we are different, our worship is different from these yeah, other people's yeah. worship, um, rather than actually that, that reality of that encounter with the living God, um, mm. uh, um, th- and that 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 reality of what it means to be filled with spirit, and um, so I think we need we need to dig down into our own roots to see yeah. what what is the substance here of Pentecostalism without pushing ourselves adrift from the rest of the, yeah. of, of, of the body of Christ, that what what is deeply rooted in our tradition, but actually what are the commonalities that that has with other traditions? Where are the places that, that the, where there are weaknesses in our own tradition where we can we can learn from the rest of the body of Christ as well as, because um, sometimes our, our thinking maybe is just that we have something to give to others rather than that we have something to gain from others. Yeah, 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 that's right. No, I, absolutely. I, I think one of the ways, and this has changed a lot. I mean, another thing I'm sure everyone has picked up on already by listening simply to the, the sounds of our voices and the styles in which we speak. But when when you're talking about Pentecostalism, your your context is primarily the UK and Europe, mm-hmm. and mine is primarily the US. I mean, we both travel and write, and so we cross those lines, but primarily that's where we operate. And, th- and those are very different animals. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know less about your context than I know about mine, but I, I think that has changed and is changing rapidly. So when I was a young Pentecostal kid in church and then in Bible school, I think there was a real risk of sectarianism and triumphalism kind of always at play, right? Where we were 
constantly talking about ourselves in these elevated terms over against all other Christians, right? That we were not only Christian, genuinely Christian in a way Catholics were not, but we were also genuinely people of scripture in a way that other Protestants were not, people of the spirit in a way that other Protestants were not. And there was, I mean, I, I think an ever-present danger in my circles as I grew up of setting ourselves, not just kind of pushing ourselves off and setting ourselves adrift, but really building walls around ourselves as the only true people of God, right? And of course, you know, the naming of some of our denominations, the Church of God, for example, I mean, it has that built into it, this claim that we are the faithful people, right? As over against, we're the elect, we are the we are the bride, the man-child, whatever metaphor from scripture they, they were drawing to show that superiority. So we, we come from American Pentecostals, I mean, are often from come out traditions, right? We came out from other traditions out in this commitment to fullness, right? But I think that has changed. My students now, the students that I teach, and I mean grad students, but also a few years ago when I was teaching undergrad students, they don't seem to have that anymore. And there's a way in which I think the Pentecostal movement has so melded with the larger church growth movement and the larger mega church culture that like almost all Christian distinction has vanished altogether. So I think within my own lifetime here in the States, at least we've gone from, you know, this sectarian triumphalism to a kind of bland, I, I hate to call it mere Christianity. It's, it's almost like generic Christianity. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like How generic can we be? And also be emotional in worship, right? So uh, talk a little bit about what you've seen in your circles. Do you see a similar shift? And yeah, if so, what, really what do you make similar, of that? Really similar shift here. Um, and uh, I think I think probably sometime in the in 1990s that a real shift happened to British Pentecostalism. Um, and um, uh, there are different factors that played into that. I think part of it was from God that there was this superiority that had to be broken by mm -hmm. God mm -hmm. um, and Pentecostals had to realise that they weren't the um, the one true church or whatever yes, um, right. they thought that they didn't believe everything was but, um, um, but they had, had to realise that they they didn't have everything they they weren't just the, um they weren't waiting for everyone to come and join their ways um, yeah. uh, that they had. Um, uh, so I think there was that sort of superiority that had to be broken by God and a humbling that had to come. Um, but I suppose it's like anytime God does something, it's how do people mm. channel that and how do people follow that through and what do they hold on to? And, yeah. and, Rather than um, um, and, and I suppose that could have gone in different directions, but in many ways it did go into a direction of, well, the church growth movement has something because we can see we, we can we can see something exciting happening there that we don't see happening with ourselves, um, and, and so very similar to what you're saying, that sort of melding of church growth movement of mega church style things uh, i suppose with the rise of the internet as well seeing um uh seeing 
what it looks like in faraway places that you're not used to and um and like one of the big factors and one of the ways you can sort of trace that british pentecostalism is the marginalization of the Lord's supper that um until sometime in the 1990s every british pentecostal church every sunday morning was the breaking of bread service and it was not just a portion of the service it was like everything in the service is somehow connected to the Lord's Supper. is the central thing and everything like that determines what sort of songs you sing. That determines what what type of thing you can preach on a Sunday morning. Um, that everything flows into or out of the supper. Um, but around that time, it, it, it um, see that shift of the supper becomes five minutes in the service, or or it yeah, becomes yeah. less frequent, um, and uh, and the sort of um. Uh, I suppose many people think of it as a sort of like worship becoming more contemporary or whatever, but uh, but there's a, a bigger underlying shift that's going on than that. That's right, and I actually think Jonathan, that's a, that's a great transition point, and it you know there there are certainly differences, I'm sure, but that that shift you just named, that shift to become more contemporary, what happened here in the U.S. and I've written some about this is it's not so much a conscious choice to repudiate the sacramental theology that had been at work in our tradition, which for the most part, now part of what makes Pentecostalism Pentecostalism is that it's, it's incredibly eclectic, right? In in the U S even though it had, it tended toward a sectarian identity in reality, it was piecing together, resourcing virtually all traditions, right? So it was, there, it was very pastiche like the theology, right? And but without acknowledging all of those debts necessarily, right? It was, it was, there was a sense of, you know, if God has done anything anywhere, it belongs to us, right? Because we've come in, come into this fullness, but somewhere in the, and and here, I think it was, it started in the eighties. And I think it was the energy for it was twofold. And I don't quite understand how these interacted, but in part of it, part, part of the story was a reaction against the civil rights movement. Okay. So there was a, some of the energy was coming from a social conservatism and right. kind of ache to get back behind the upheavals of the second world war and the civil rights movement. Right. So a, back to the simpler times, quote unquote. And so, and, and I think that energy was deeper and more prominent, but there was another energy, which was the energy of prosperity. So the U S in the eighties, uh, you know, becoming truly a global superpower, the economic prosperity, the 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 ways in which the middle class is is being lifted by all of that. That that because our churches are so missional minded, they essentially are always married to whatever's happening in the culture by default, right? And they're they're riding the wave of the culture constantly, and for good and and bad ends, right? Two good and bad ends. And and so I think in in the eighties you see those two things coming together to create a rejection of our tradition that was largely not uh, largely unintentional. Yeah. And it was it wasn't so much a anti traditionalism or a, a kind of conscious awareness that we were wrong and we need to correct it. It was more we've got to find ways to address the social problems that we're sensing. And we've got to find ways to kind of stay in touch with the culture. We have to become contemporary. So my, an example of this, if you'll let me, 
share it with you because I'd love to hear your comments on it, is in the Pentecostal Holiness Church, which is the, uh, I, I attended an independent Holiness Pentecostal Church, but I was sent, my parents sent me to a Christian academy that was in the Pentecostal Holiness tradition. And then I went to Bible school at a Pentecostal Holiness Church. And there was a a rubric for the longest time, I mean, for the first almost 100 years of the Pentecostal Holiness Church that was essentially taken right out of the, the BCP. And it included the prayer of humble access. I mean, it was a, imagine like a, a greatly abbreviated Eucharistic service, you know, right one from the BCP. That's essentially what was in the handbook for Pentecostal holiness ministers. Now, whether or not they actually followed it is another question, but that's what was in the rubric, right? I've, and then I've, I've, I've read where, um, uh, an article where you've, where you quoted some of that rubric. And what really amazed me was that it talks about them needling. Um, yes. So you said, yeah, yeah. So we, we've discussed this before and you're right. Like the, they gather around the table is the language that's used. And then they kneel to receive. And the minister goes through this liturgy and then, you know, gives the body and bread. And it includes, of course, not an epiclesis, but this, you know, make for us this bread and wine, the body and blood of our Lord. So this request for God to make it sacramental presence. Yeah. And then, as you as you said, in the rubric, people are kneeling and then they're given the body. This this is the body. This is the blood. That's in the rubric, right? And then in the 80s, that shifts. And what you get instead is this prayer that's not to the triune God, right? Instead of Almighty God or Father Almighty, you get Lord Jesus. Hmm. Right? And and I, again, I don't think that was at all a theological choice. Now it has theological consequences, but it was a stylistic choice. It was we we have to speak in contemporary ways. And God Almighty or Almighty God or Father Almighty, it it feels dated. to us right in the in the 80s and so we get this this prayer to lord to the lord jesus i don't have it on hand but the the prayer itself but you've seen it and it's essentially a you know we want to remember what you did for us and so we and and i do remember this line we bless this loaf and this cup we bless not we're no longer asking god to act we're telling god what we're going to do and what's astounding to me about this example, and there, of course there are lots of similar ones, is that that was not a theological choice, right? It, it, it was a, a stylistic one to contemporize our language. But of course, it, it's hard to overstate the theological consequences of that, right? So talk a little bit about, do you see something similar in your circles motivated by similar oh, yeah. ambitions? So, um, th- that makes me think really of um, when I uh, when I started um, teaching at the college here, um, uh, for the first couple of years before the pandemic, um, started uh, a daily break and bread service. Um, and, um, and then some of the students started saying strange things like about the difference between the way I did it and the way the Pentecostals did it. <laughs> and I have to get it right. I'm, I'm a Pentecostal pastor. What do you right, mean? Right. Um, and, uh, and they said, but you say things like when you give us the bread, you say the body of Christ broken for you. And then one student got up and he said, I remember my grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor. And I remember at every communion that he always did that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they suddenly began to realize, oh, hang on. 
this is this this is not. Uh, I, I think um, initially the, uh, some of the students thought like, is this imported Anglicanism or something like this? And, <laughs> That's right. And then, yes. And, and then there is. Oh no! There's they they had some evidence from someone other than me that actually this was their own tradition um but it's just uh, and i think very much that's sort of like the contemporization of language um so uh so they they were quite surprised by because we um i would pray the power of unblock sass at every at every communion and they, they were really surprised by that at the beginning um because they were they were more used to a prayer to Lord Jesus rather than to, um, yes. uh, and uh, um, uh, so I think it is that that shift in language that shift in style that desire to be contemporary in the culture that that this sort of and and this discomfort with anything that looks like it might be in any way ritualized and and mm. and an association with that the Holy Spirit can only work in the new thing. Um, so that's one of the things I've encountered has been a reluctance, even in, um, um, now among some Pentecostals, even a reluctance to hear Christ's words at the table, because that's just a vain repetition. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that that we need to do it. We need to think of a creative new way to do it every time. Um, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and as if it's as if as if the Holy Spirit only works in what's new, but actually what's new is. Down to our work rather than God's work. It's down to our creativity <laughs> rather than um, uh, rather than that reliance on what the Lord has given us. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I that I say both to my students, to the clergy that I'm training, to pastors I'm working with, is one of the reasons to listen and to submit to the wisdom of the tradition is that. That is not only allowing God to work, it's allowing God to work in our neighbors. It's a way of honoring our father and mother as our neighbors in whom God has been working. And a lot of Pentecostal ministry, because it's self-made, it's an attempt to do something on God's behalf without relying on my neighbor. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's already a violation of the way in which the Lord has taught us to live, right? So I think... While we do not want to be traditionalist, and I think this is true of all Christians, right? We don't want to be traditionalistic. We don't want to be caught up in traditionalism. I think being traditional is just a way of loving our neighbor, the neighbor who's lived before us and has has followed the Lord's way to the end. And and that to ignore that wisdom is is to put ourselves at peril. And and also our our neighbor is alive now in. In, in a few in a few different senses and um, uh i i what i see um so um i don't know what things are like currently in america but uh, britain um uh, pentecostal churches in britain are in very multicultural places they're mm. some of the most multicultural places you'll find in this country because um we have um uh in the last few decades we have um, so many Pentecostals from, uh, especially from West Africa, but other parts of the world as well, that have come to Britain and sort of reinvigorated a lot of our churches. Yeah. Um, and what what actually we find whenever whenever we have this blending of cultures, that sometimes this desire for what seems contemporary to us is what seems contemporary to us in a sort of white middle class 
British urban culture rather mm-hmm. than what is loving our neighbour from the other side of the world. And and people from and Pentecostals from other cultures are often much more comfortable with yeah. um, with with those elements of the tradition than than we are, and, and find it much more important and much more helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think even just. You know, because Pentecostals care about evangelism a lot, and and I think even evangelistically that in in when I before I came down here, the last church I was pastor, and we um, we would always every week say the memorial acclamation at communion: "Dying, you destroyed our death; rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory." And um, there was uh, there was a guy came into the church. And at the beginning, he um, he was coming with his girlfriend, um, uh, and he was just coming for her sake. And um, uh, so he wouldn't say the words because he, he said to me, he said, he said, I hope you're not offended. I don't want to say these words because I don't believe them. So there's no point in me. It would be hypocritical of me to say them if I don't believe them. I said, no, that's fine. Sure, <laughs> yeah, sure. That's, uh, I'm not asking you to say something you don't believe. Um, over the course of time, he suddenly realized he was he was saying them. And eventually he came to me and he said, he said, I hear these same words every week. And he said, I hear lots of other stuff in church and you know it washes over me or whatever. But this little these three lines, I hear these three lines the same every week that about mm-hmm. Jesus destroying our death, restoring our life and coming in glory. He said, and and the more I heard them. I suddenly realized one week that actually I believe this and, um, <laughs> and I want to say it too. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's something of in that, you know, we're a very verbal tradition. Like um, mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we probably maybe don't want to admit that, but like we waffle on an awful lot. Um, we, yes. Have, yes. <laughs> we have really long sermons and we say all yes. sorts of things. And, uh, and sometimes we don't think carefully about what we say. Um, uh, but those liturgical elements they've been thought about really carefully, that they convey something succinctly that is powerful and true. And sometimes we might want to think it's in our powerful, creative sermon preaching. (laughs) But sometimes he works in the words that he's been working in for Mm. hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, I don't want to sidetrack too far into this, but I, I do think American Pentecostal, and I think this is true, by the way, of, of other traditions. We just happen to be talking about our own right now. But I, I think there, there are deep, deep, deep contradictions in American tradition. And one is, in American Pentecostal tradition, one is it is very evangelistic, but it has, right from the very beginning, also had strong inclination towards social conservatism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there there's an openness to evangelistic ministry to immigrants and refugees and illegals so-called but then that's kind of always at odds with a concern with keeping the order of the status quo and, and so on and and those those i think run right down like through the whole of the spirituality like the, those kinds of tensions and, and contradictions and and I'm thinking about that because of what you said about multicultural churches. I think that's true here too. Like there, there, a lot of our churches are multicultural, although that tends to be truer, I think, in non-denominational Pentecostalism here sure. than in denominational, although I don't have the numbers in front of me. So that may just be, I may be misreading my impressions there. But it's it's interesting here in the States that even the multiculturalism is 
it often does not deal with the underlying political <clears throat> issues any more than it deals with the underlying theological ones, right? So one of the things that I worry about as a theologian in this tradition and as a pastor is there's a there's a superficiality to this that I, I don't quite know how to challenge rightly, how to, how to confront rightly, in, in which we are able to kind of gather people for shared experiences. But we, we, we often struggle to deal with the underlying issues that remain mm-hmm. in the lives of those who gathered, right, between them and in them. And we, we seem, and I think this is related to the, the shallowness of the theology, right? We seem to be un- reluctant far too often. I want to be careful here because I don't want to overgeneralize. I definitely think there, there are exceptions, of course, to all of this. But there, there's a way in which we, we tend to be satisfied with getting a big crowd together, singing some songs, hearing a sermon, and going home. And I think... The the turn toward theological and liturgical depth, I think, is a way that can lead us to pastoral depth and, and a discernment about the social and political issues, economic issues mm-hmm. that need to be confronted. And I mean, that's in our Wesleyan tradition, that, that kind of concern for social and economic issues. But we've largely lost it here. I mean, what what about UK Pentecostalism? Is, yeah. is there a similar superficiality or do you see more? readiness and willingness to grapple i think there's probably a growth of that i I think there wasn't in our tradition um and um so i think that in some of these issues i think there's this is where i still see some quite big differences between the uk and american pentecostalism um that so where at least from my at a distance perception across the ocean, yeah, 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 there yeah. seems to be a sort of um, not a hundred percent political affiliation, but you know, a, a large, yeah, a, a large correspondence in between sort of Pentecostalism or evangelicalism and 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 and, and that how people vote. Um, yes. Whereas in in this country, that just is not a thing that exists. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, that, that's telling, I think. I, I, I mean, I really do think that is a, a drastic difference. Um, so, 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 like some of some of the earliest Pentecostal leaders, like I know some <laughs> older Pentecostal leaders, that if they hadn't been uh, um, Pentecostal pastors, they would have got into. Uh, politics and uh, and but the party they say that they would have got into is the opposite party from one another. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. uh, but they, uh, but usually from that sort of, they have that concern for those social uh, issues. Yeah. 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 Um, but they don't see that there's one political answer that is mm. the Christian answer or the Pentecostal yeah. answer um, to that. Um, and yeah, there there may be people that have very strong political opinions on one side or the other, and I suppose we also don't have a a, a true party system the way America has. We have yeah. more political parties and stuff, so maybe that um, affects it uh, uh, to an extent as well. Although generally, the government's formed by only one of two parties. So, um, right. so we, yeah, but that's, that is worth noting. Yeah, I agree. Um, but um, 
so so we do have so on that front i think um we have quite a big difference but i think one of the other things is in early pentecostals here we're very concerned about those sort of social issues so in my uh, in, in my denomination the apostolic church um that every church in in the early years they had um they called it in those days the power fund um that mm. out of whatever income came into the church um the local elders could decide that more was going to be contributed out of that to the power fund but at least a certain amount at least a certain proportion had to be um yeah. uh, kept as the power fund on top of that they had the elders discretionary fund which uh was <laughs> for, for other sort of um so basically these funds were things to to care for widows for orphans for those who were um in medical need for uh for those who were experiencing economic hardship um i suppose um there were the times of minor strikes and and, and things like this um and the closing of the colonies because a lot of Pentecostal churches started in sort of mining areas uh and so yeah, 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 right. was a thing that affected them um uh, and uh, so there was this um real desire to provide for those social and economic needs yeah um whereas over time i think that has um i i don't i i, I, I can't say that it's, it's with that on with that shift in worship and that shift in sacramentality and stuff that um but but it isn't i, I can't say that one has definitely caused the effort but there is yeah, they do seem related. I they do agree. seem related. They do seem um, similar um, sort of time scales, um, and uh, and a shift from where that pastoral care was. Um, in one sense, pastoral care was bound up with the whole of life, but also life was the whole of life was bound up with church. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a shift away to the sort of as you were saying about sort of like. We can have the meeting. People can go home, and we can wait <laughs> until right. next time they come to the meeting or whatever. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's another another shift that we know we know it's there, but I think we're at least here in 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 my world we're grossly underestimating the effects of it. And that is again, when I grew up, I mean, I'm 46, so it's not that long ago. You know, when I'm a kid, when I'm a teenager, when I'm a young adult, we're having church multiple times a week. I mean, I grew up in a church. We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Saturday night services. And then we had revivals that would go for weeks at a time. And we had summer camps and youth services. I mean, so we were in church more often than we were not. Yeah. And by the time I was an adult with kids of my own, you know, church was something you did once a week for a couple of hours. And, of course, people are still watching churches online, right? They're they're listening to to Christian radio or they're watching Christian TV, but that's a different experience from yes. showing up and hearing the same teachers. <clears throat> and one of, one of the consequences of that, I think is we, we lost our appetite for study and for prolonged prayer. And I mean, in addition to, of course, now experiencing our Christianity as something that is, in a sense, piped into us rather than something that's shared with a, with a group of people whose names we know and faces we recognize. And I, I think it would be hard to overestimate 
the, the implications of a shift like that and how quickly it came, right? I mean, you're talking about just a couple of decades, three decades at most, we went from a movement that was gathering often with the same people, hearing the same teachers, doing deep Bible study, prolonged periods of prayer to people who share an hour or two of experience a week with people whose names we do not know and whose faces we do not recognize. So again, I'll ask, do you see a similar shift? And do you think, am I over it? Am I overstating the consequences of something? Yeah, like that? I think that has a huge, so I think there's a huge catechetical deficit now because I think, no, I, I don't know in America, in, in, in this country, there were like, you know, formal Pentecostal catechisms and stuff like that, but I'm not sure how well used they were. Um, yeah. It yeah. was, it was that, it was that embedded life in the community that whether or not you were using the catechism or whatever, but you were being catechized in that, um, that there was a whole, and not just in a, in a list of things to believe, but in a way of life, in a way of worship, in, in, it was a holistic catechesis, yes. um, that you were, um, so in this country, you would be in, um, the breaking of bread on Sunday morning, Sunday's gone Sunday afternoon, gospel service on Sunday night. Um, you'd have a prayer meeting um, during the week. You would have the, we called it the ministry meeting here, but that was sort of like the big sort of Bible study and teaching um, time during the week. Um, and then you'd have youth or or else a, a or else a district rally where a couple of churches got together or something on a saturday um that yeah. so your whole week was structured around it but it was it wasn't i'm going to these things and getting information pumped into me it was yeah. i'm being formed in relationship with these people i'm worshiping together with these people i'm praying together with these people i'm studying the scripture together with these people we're asking our questions we're we're going to God in his word and in prayer for answers. Um, and um, and then suddenly, um, so that's one big factor, sort of like the decline of the breaking bread service here. It was like, we don't have a ministry meeting anymore, so we need to fit the teaching into Sunday morning. We we don't have a prayer meeting anymore. We just need to fit the prayer into Sunday morning. We don't have the Sunday evening service anymore. So we need to fit all the things we do then into Sunday morning. Uh, and also we don't want to stay in church so long on a Sunday morning. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. so it all gets uh, and I think here the last couple of years have been um there's been a slow process of this. Um it's been going on for a couple of decades, but the last couple of years with the pandemic have in a way, it looks like being the final nail in the coffin of this. That um, mm. uh, so, I know of so many churches that still had multiple meetings of the week, but can't get back to more than one meeting on a Sunday now, um, yeah, yeah. post pandemic. Um, uh, um, uh, and um, so, uh, I think even where the remainders of this um, existed, that. US but as you say, same thing in this country. People are um, have been before the internet. It was cassette tips and CDs, right. and, right. yeah. then it was the internet and yeah. Christian TV, and um, and so there is that informational side coming to people. Although it is a sort of mishmash from all sorts of, yes. um, which sometimes leads to some incredible confusion. Um, <laughs> but, um, yes. Um, but also just not just confusion in a person, but confusion just even between people in the same church that they're talking 
past one another because mm-hmm. their teachings mm-hmm. coming from different places. What they're saying doesn't mean the same thing to each that's other right. anymore. That's and right. that sort of, I think it has an effect even on that sort of, like, this now makes it harder to come together for those extended periods of prayer because actually now you're, everyone's understanding what we're doing by praying slightly differently. That's or, right. Um, uh, and we are now just a group of individuals who come together for some things rather than that that body, that family, that unity that was there before. And uh, um, that might be a very extreme picture of it, painted in very black and white terms, but um, but, um, but, but I think that is the trajectory. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and it it points up another one of those contradictions that I'm kind of constantly noticing and, and having my attention brought back to that I think and again I think this is true of evangelicalism broadly so you know for those of our listeners who aren't Pentecostal I mean this is almost certainly true about your tradition too whatever it happens to be if you're not Roman Catholic or Orthodox or or Lutheran or you know some something along those lines I think we we've kind of always and this, this is certainly truer in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. But there's always been this kind of suspicion about scholarship and study. And yet there's also been this deep love for the study of scripture and the deeper things of God. You know, like the early, as you well know, like early Pentecostal periodicals, you know, are filled with Bible studies, right? In-depth Bible studies. And then also references to the church fathers, especially the pre-Nicene fathers, to the mystics, right? And there's a, it's it's hard to read one of those early periodicals without hearing some ancient figure or some mystical figure named. Mm-hmm. And even even in the same breath as, you know, what God is doing now has never been done before, right? <laughs> like there's a, there's a way in which th- this contradiction has always been there. And it's tied actually to what I see playing out right now, yet again in revival. So, I'm sure you've heard it's all the talk here in, in, you know, in church circles about the revival at Asbury and at Lee university. Now there are stories of that and the ramp, which is a ministry Karen Wheaton leads in, in Alabama, places like that. And notice what one of the things they all have in common is essentially their schools where you have young students and they're studying scripture and have time for prolonged prayer. And, Surprise, surprise, the spirit is moving in those circles. And so I like one of the things that fascinates me, and, and I'd love to move from this to just to talk about revival. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But I another one of those contradictions that, that never ceases to surprise me is that if we look at our history, the spirit has again and again and again moved in the setting of school, right? Study places of study and communities that form around the study of scripture and the study of theology and pray together in that setting. And suddenly their revival springs out from there. Right. And that happens generation after generation in context after context. And yet then we turn around and talk as if study is a risk and theology is unnecessary. And again, I know this is more pronounced here than there, but I'd love to hear your comment on that as well. That that kind of do you see that tension? Am I describing oh, it well? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about that. So. Um, 
And I think in this country, we've had sort of pendulum shift swings with that, that um, I think the earliest Pentecostals here, um, so we see really early Pentecostals um, going off to Cambridge um, to study we, and that being a great thing. Um, we, um, um, and then we see a shift away where, um, so uh, in my movement, um, the I think I think he was already the principal of the Bible College. He, he asked for leave of absence to go and study under Thomas Torrance at Edinburgh, mm -hmm. and he was told there was no way that he was going to do academic study. That, um, <laughs> so sort of like in the middle of the 20th century, so that shift from people really wanting um, young Pentecostals to go off to university to oh no, that we, we we must be very suspicious of, of academic study of theology, then. I, I'm really privileged. I suppose I gr just grew up at the right moment where there was a great encouragement of young people to study theology. Um, I think that was across British Pentecostalism um, uh, at that stage. But a lot of those young people now have are not part of the Pentecostal movement anymore. They're probably still Pentecostal in belief um, yeah, in yeah. practice. But but there's been a pendulum shift away again, where um, mm. of of that uh, of that downplaying of theological study again, and so, so we've had that constant back and forth. Um, at times, it's been um, it, it's been valued, but then at other times, it's been very hard for uh, for some people with with a certain level of academic of, of of theological scholarship to 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 flourish within yeah. the movement because yeah. um because because that pendulum swing keeps yeah. happening um uh and and i suppose it, it it is perhaps just linked into that um of which bit of that tension in the early years are we most latched on to at the moment is it the serious bible study is it that drawing upon uh upon the church fathers and the mystics and things like that um uh, uh in this country it was also drawing upon the puritan tradition as well um, uh, mm. and, um so um like some of the people that encouraged me to study they said like when they were um when they were teenagers uh, their pastors were giving them uh, John Owen's Christologia to read as a teenager and, and things yeah, like this. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so, so like, at, at times we were encouraging teenagers to read hard theological texts. Yeah. And at other times we were telling people, don't go off and study theology, it will right. ruin your spirituality or something. Yeah, whatever you do. Right, and, and there's a way in which, I, I think there there's always been here in the U.S. a suspicion of the academy, mm -hmm. but there was for a long time a deep love for scholarship in the sense that we wanted, at least we wanted some teachers who could provide real depth in, in the teaching. You know, I, I was yeah. talking with Mark Sharona last night about when he was at Bible school and this teacher who was actually a British Pentecostal who they would bring over, Eddie Smith, I think was his name, they would bring him over for their their convocation every year. And he would do these like deep teachings on the visions of Ezekiel say, right. 
and and there there was an appetite for that right up until I think the seventies and eighties here, and then that that went away, like that desire for that kind of depth in teaching again, whether it was academic or not is is irrelevant mm-hmm. right it was there was a desire for people who knew scripture well could could make cross references could explain yeah. in depth what scripture is saying. You know, it was tied to teachings about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle reveals the ministry of Christ and the the plan of salvation. I mean, there 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 was real depth there, and then suddenly there wasn't. Right? Suddenly there was just not even an appetite for for yeah. that. And you know, I, I grieve that. Right? I grieve that for for my students, for my friends, you know, for the pastors in this tradition now who, if they do have a desire for that, if the Spirit does lead them toward that depth, it often means they have to look elsewhere right because there's just not a there's not a place for that kind of depth yeah and i i think that um it's very very much the same situation here um and and i i think one of the things that's sort of like been on my heart a lot um these last couple of years is we as a tradition are lacking very much currently in a way um that sort of rigorous yet accessible um, mm-hmm. uh, teaching. We have we have increasing number of high, high people working at a high level theologically, academically. Um, we have a lot of rubbish out there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but but yeah. there are other traditions that are really good at making serious study of scripture and serious study of theology um, and accessible to people that that they can't or, or even making stepping stones towards that higher level stuff That's right. um, and 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 those people in our tradition that have a hunger for that either are getting drawn uh, feeling as if they can't have that in our tradition that they need to go to another tradition. They go somewhere else, that's right. Um, uh, um, uh, and uh, because because there are resources there, there there is enthusiasm there. But actually that is our heritage. And yeah. we've, we've somehow lost something there that, like in this country, people that, people that left school at 14, that, um, uh, that, but then spent spent their free time educating themselves, yeah. studying hard themselves, so that they like we have these early Pentecostal leaders that were down in the coal mine during the day, and then sitting up at night reading the church fathers, um, That's exactly that, right, yeah. um, uh, clubbing together to build uh, to 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 be to be able to establish a library so that they could get access to these things um, and. Um, um, so this is our heritage. Our our fathers and mothers really cared about. Um, they wanted they they wanted to. They took scripture seriously, and so they wanted whatever good help uh, was available to them to study it seriously, to answer those difficult questions, and to inspire that passion for God's word mm-hmm. in the next generation as well. And um, and I I think. If we if we want to see a healthy future as a tradition, 
we need to regain some of that that um that we cannot we can't have a healthy future living on an em an, an emotional response to what yeah. god is um yeah. and promising to meet needs i mean i think part of the reason the pentecostal movement grows is because we tell people there's a living god who knows you have needs and wants to see them and see to them right yeah. which is wonderful right i mean i want to i celebrate that you know, but what if that's not tied to a call to a life of obedience and contemplation and service of your neighbor and catechesis? Like if it if it doesn't become that, then we're just constantly giving people what they need, right? We we become a kind of soup kitchen. Mm-hmm. At, I mean, at best, we we are kind of meeting immediate needs, but then releasing people right back out to sleep at night on the streets and are never actually bringing about the kind of long-term change that we used to call sanctification. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I really do. I do think we are kind of in that balance yet again. I mean, we have to find a way to recover practices like deep study of scripture, like the breaking of bread, I mean, not just like those things, those things in particular, and then all that goes with them. If if we're going to do the kind of work that God, I think, wants to do in us, right? Rather than just, I mean, an example of this is we, there's so much energy spent on prophecy and what prophecy is. And prophecy then gets reduced down to a word you God has given you for me, right? So you're you're giving me a word about my future that God has shared with you, which can be wonderful. And I've had those moments in my life where you know, a word like that pivoted my life trajectory, right? So I, I'm in no way downplaying it. But at some point, I have to hear God's word about Jesus and God's word about my neighbor. I have yeah. to contemplate the beauty. I mean, you're you're preparing now to to teach on Christology. I think your work on on the Lord's Supper, my work on the Lord's Supper is a, is about coming to thank God, like giving thanks for what God has done in in Jesus Christ. Right, that what I was talking about earlier: studies of the tabernacle to reflect on what does this say about Jesus. And my my bishop here in the states, he says, "Don't get bored with Jesus. Don't get bored with Jesus." Yeah. And I, I think a lot of us have, like, we've gotten bored with contemplating the face of God. And what we've become addicted to, what can I get out of this? Whether it's a feeling I have during the singing or a word that somebody gives me during the altar time or practical principles for living, improving my life and the teaching. Like we, we've become, and I know this is cliche, but it's true. We become consumers, right? We, we've, we go to church to get things for ourselves and, like that, that absolutely has to turn. Not, not that I'm preaching at you, but I, I think, I mean, that's where, where the turn has to be made. Like we have to fall in love with Jesus and what Jesus tells us about God and about our neighbor. So talk about that a little bit. And then I want to ask you a final question about revival. Yeah. Um, so I think really that, 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 that's, that's why I care so much about the breaking of our heads. That to me, that is, the center of true Pentecostalism because it's the thing that is focusing all our attention on Jesus. It's not because 
I'm obsessed with how we do this um, particular act on a Sunday morning, but it, but because it's through this that our gaze is taken away from our own needs, that it's taken away from my fulfilment in this, that, you know, sometimes I might have a wonderful experience around the Lord's table. Sometimes I might not feel anything around the Lord's table, but I'm not looking at myself. <laughs> I'm looking to Jesus and whether I feel anything or not, that there is, uh, he is at work in that. Um, like, I, I, I think something that um, I've been thinking about so much lately is just how I think in a way we've we've sometimes in our tradition reduced the idea of conformity to Christ as if it's just a sort of mm. that's just about your personal holiness that's just about yes spirituality but actually that love for our neighbor that uh, that going out from ourselves to offer that that laying down our lives for the sake of others that's Christ likeness absolutely um and uh, and and yeah, we're being transformed in our own personal lives. Our spiritual lives are being transformed, but that's part of something uh, much bigger. That as we are gazing on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that 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 entire transformation of our lives is what we should be seeing flowing out of it. Our entire transformation of our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, uh, and we on. Until we come back to that contemplative gazing on the face of Jesus, um, we are not, not we, we can go round and round in circles talking about our discipleship problems and our evangelistic problems and whatever problems we think we have yeah. and trying to patch things up. But, but, but it will just be a going round and round in circles right. until we start putting our eyes in the right place. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and like, as you say, in prophecy, like, what does Revelation say? That the, the testimony of Jesus, Jesus right, is right, part right. of prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, uh, that prophecy is not there so that we have an exciting time because, oh, there was a prophecy in the meeting today or somebody spoke a word over my life. Prophecy is supposed to lift our eyes from ourselves to Jesus. In fact, um, I, I was just writing about um, uh, um, a chapter on testing prophecy this week and I um, uh, and, and just was really struck by how much of older Pentecostal writing about testing prophecy was about Jesus as the true test of prophecy. That, um, uh, that like, yeah, obviously we test prophecy by scripture, but it's because scripture is, uh, because Jesus is testing it by his word. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right, uh, right. Um, uh, uh, but, um, uh, and, and we, I think we have a real danger in this country of diminishing prophecy simply to nice spiritual thoughts. That's right. Um, or something that's going to give me a buzz in the meeting or might uh, encourage me in prayer for a day or two, but but a really shallow level of, mm. um, or a very 
I might have a bee in my bottle, but this is the better term. Um, about we talk in prophecy in such ways as if prophecy is a really easy thing, but you can all hear from everyone can hear from God, and uh, and we we confuse any spiritual thought with That's prophecy. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, it's just our unconscious, like any thought that arrives. I mean, all thoughts come to us. All thoughts do, right? And if you start to think that any thought that comes to you and surprises you is God, right? then you call it prophecy, right? Like the, we, there's a serious, like there's a serious deficit there of anthropology as well as Christology, right? Like, a, yeah. and, and so on. So we're going to have to have you back to talk about your Lord's Supper book, which comes out right in July. Is that what you said? July, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're going to do that again. I'm making that pledge now because I want to talk to you specifically about, about the breaking of bread and the our history there and, and our future. But I, but I want I want you to kind of close our time today talking about revival. So I, I have you know, lots of dear friends who are moved by or provoked by what is happening at Asbury and Lee and at the ramp and other places like that. And, and then provoked by what people are saying about it. Right. So the last thing that we need, and I've tried to go on the record here. The last thing anyone needs is punditry mm-hmm. about anything, much less about revival. So I, I don't, I'm not interested in being a pundit and I don't want to put you in the position to be a pundit, but I, I would say as a theologian and as a pastor, what would you say to us about, not necessarily these revivals, but just about what, how do we, how should we think and feel about revival? If, if that's what we're praying for, if that's what we've been told we should want. Um, if just as a father in this tradition, what would you say about it? Um, like, like you say, I think I am alarmed by the amount of pond tray. Um, at the minute and um, for the first few days I didn't want to I almost didn't want to know what was going on because it was almost like I don't want to read these tweets that people are writing because if God is doing something this is not a way to talk about it Um, um, uh, but on the flip side of that after a few days um, I did read a a few things which were encouraging me to pray more for revival um, uh, because I think part of the way historically that revival has spread is that people have heard what God is doing other places and they've prayed for yeah, God to yeah, work yeah. among them. So, so it's that balance of we want we do want to talk about these things, but we want to talk about what God is doing because we want to be reminded that God doesn't only work in centuries past and he works now um, and, and, and can do things just as powerfully as he's done in the past. Um, so we do want to talk about it, what God can do. And we do want to uh, recognize when God is doing something and, and have that hunger that comes from it. Um, and I think within our tradition, there's been, um, so Ian Stackhouse is a British charismatic writer who wrote a book called The Gospel Driven Church about a decade or maybe more ago now um and and he sort of took on this uh, that in in his tradition um in the british new church tradition there is this such emphasis on praying for revival that he said we need to get back to some of the traditions of the church we need to get back to catechesis we need to get back to the sacraments um 
um, uh, and stopping because we're in danger of just jumping from one fad to another. Yes. Um, and I think that applies to Pentecostals more widely. We yeah, are yeah. in danger of jumping from fad to another, but at the same time, we also want to pray for God's work of revival because we're only here today because he did that in the past. Yeah. Uh, we're only here today because he did things in Azusa Street, because he did things in South Wales, because he did things in India. Um, uh, and because um, be, It's only because of these powerful sovereign interventions of God that we even have a tradition in the first place. And so how can we not long for God to to break in? And because when those things happened, it wasn't just um some excitement in a meeting. Like that 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 line about Azusa Street, like, I mean, maybe it lost some of its power because it's so well known now, but the colour line being washed away in the blood. Yeah. Um, but some, but that was a reality. Yeah. Um, we saw the same in this country as well. That that when God poured out His Spirit in that way, that it wasn't just a surface level. Oh, we happened to go to the same church. That there was a deep down breaking down of barriers of remolding relationships um, of of the reality of seeing that that new creation um uh, not just singing about being a new creation um and um um so so i think uh, so, so what i'm taking away from this is i i want i want to long for that i want to encourage people to to pray for it i want but i also want to protect not in a sense oh, i want to protect it but i want i want there to be a protection of what god's doing by us not um by 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 people not jumping in with their analyses and critiques and um because i think what i've what i seem to be hearing from what's been happening so far anyway is that these are things where god has just done stuff there isn't a person at the center of this there isn't uh i think some of the things that we've called revival in the past has been around a person or around yeah absolutely um rather than around the work of God. Um, whereas what we're being reminded now is that when when God breaks in, that it doesn't it doesn't need to like even as Pentecostal we talk about William Seymour, but what did he do? He he hid behind the shoebox. <laughs> um, um, that um that he didn't want to be at the centre of that. Um uh, um so um yeah so uh, so I'm I'm excited. I'm praying. I yeah. I want to see that re that coming back into our churches because in a way I think there are many people who've grown up in our tradition that know it only as a tradition that yeah. that have not that that maybe even are slightly confused by hearing about things like this now because yeah, I was going to say I think I grew up hearing stories about it i think by the time i was grown up we didn't even tell the stories anymore mm. like not only were we not just hearing about them we weren't even hearing you know yeah. and I, I i think and we do have to stop for the day I, i've got to i've got all kinds of chores here thousand and you've got the christology to study but i i for me and i want to try to thread a needle here i the last thing we need is to think about it in abstraction Right. 
what we want is not revival as an abstraction. What we want is a renewal of our love for Jesus and the love yes. of Jesus in us, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what you and I have been saying in various ways all all day, right? Is it's when we talk about revival and we don't quite know what we mean, it's because we've we've lost the face of Jesus, right? Yeah. We've lost the heart of Jesus. And the Spirit's work is always to to bring us there and to yeah. bring that up in us. The, the second thing is I I don't at all want to reduce this to a technique, you know, in that Charles Finney, here's, here's the way you bring about revival way. But I I do think we know the things that we have to do to posture ourselves for this work to break through. I mean, I I think it's right to talk about a sovereign move of the spirit, but the sovereign move of the spirit is not just simply random. Like there's a way in which it's tied to our readiness to give our hearts and minds and bodies to the study of scripture, to the receiving of the tradition, to times of prolonged prayer, to, to the life of the sacraments. If we do that, then the living Jesus is going to be doing what he said he's doing, right? He's, he is here. We're the ones who aren't present, I think, to what Jesus is doing in our midst all the time. And and maybe what's happening in Asbury and Lee and elsewhere is just you have some kids who are willing to be present to what Jesus is wanting to do anyway, right? Yeah. And when we pray for revival, I I want to be careful. I don't, I don't want to be too American and over, you know, just I don't mean this in a, a heavy handed way. But I wonder if there's not a way in which we can fulfill, we can be the answer to that prayer if we're ready to just be present in prolonged ways. So give us a final word and pray for it. In prolonged ways. Prolonged, yes. um, Because I think think that's one of our big problems, that our eye is on the clock um, or the click track or or whatever it is that, that, and sometimes we have, we have timed everything down to the last second and there is no time to to give to God in that way or no time to teach people to to give prolonged time to God. Yeah. Um, yeah. um to give prolonged time to seeking Jesus. What happened at Azusa Street? It was it was the tarrying. Um and That's right, yeah. Tarrying isn't a technique. Tarrying is it's not some sort of technique to get people baptized in the spirit. It's 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 the contemplative fixing the eyes on Jesus, um, and uh, and we we need we need that time. We need um, like as um, I'm just all week and thinking about this. Um, I've just been thinking so much about how often when we talk about revival, people are thinking about the effects and the mm. gifts and what is it really it's it's seeking the giver not the gifts it's seeking yeah, the yeah, lord absolutely. himself that um that unless we want jesus um if all we want is 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 healings or yep the fish is the else, loaves. yeah that's right yeah no that that's so absolutely right why don't, why don't you pray for us pray pray for that that we will not get bored with jesus that if we if we have gotten bored with jesus that we will we'll fall in love again, Jonathan, and then we'll we'll talk in a few weeks about your book. Okay. Father, your son is glorious. Your son is f- full of wonders beyond telling. 
that the glory of Jesus is far beyond any glorious thing we could ever know, Lord, no matter what we've experienced in the past, no matter what gifts we've received from you, no matter what wonders we've seen at your hands, none of it compares to the the incredible wonders of Jesus. And Lord, just pray for all of us that we would never lose sight of that, that, Lord, every time that we see something wondrous that you've done, every time we see some wonderful gift that you give, that it would just raise our eyes to seek more of of that fullness of glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we would never be bored of Jesus, we would never be distracted from Jesus, we would never be we would never be like little children who are settling for the box instead of the present that's in it, Lord. Um, uh, Lord, don't let us get excited um, about lesser things, but let those other things fuel our excitement um, and our wonder and our amazement and our desire for your Son, I pray. Lord, that's why you pour out your Spirit to glorify the Son, that he always points us to Jesus. So, Lord, we want to know that reality of the Spirit's work as he sheds abroad your love in our hearts as we, and sh- in showing us more and more of the love that you have given us in Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Jonathan, thank you. I hope, I hope you have a good, fruitful day of study, and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you very much. Blessings. <laughs>